love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 5, which is where we will begin in just a few moments. Of course, routinely these days, preaching from 2 Corinthians, we are preaching through 2 Corinthians uh, up here until Advent, and we'll return there again the first Sunday of January. But for this season of Advent, as we routinely do, we address some theme in the story of redemption, and it ties in with the play that is presented here on stage each year. As you know, uh, because you've heard us say it, uh, that this year's play and uh, Advent series, of course, is the seventh in a seven-year series. And so next year, we go back to the first, and we will find ourselves in the book of Genesis again looking at the story of redemption from the standpoint of the Abrahamic covenant. And what in the world is that? And why does it matter to us today is where we're going to be uh, next year. But as you, as you have your Bibles open um, and uh, the sermon notes in your bulletin, uh, you can see what we want to think about today. The peace of heaven, our theme, motivation for mission. When you think about the peace of heaven, I've been working on this as a theme a bit. Uh, a book that I am halfway through I recommend books often. This one is called The Case for Heaven. It's Lee Strobel. Uh, If you're familiar with Lee Strobel's writing, you know it's Lee Strobel-esque. You'll know what I mean by that if you've read any of the Case for books. But this is an interesting book. I can't fully recommend it because I'm only halfway through it, but I can recommend the first half. And it's it's certainly a theological reflection on issues related to heaven, but he also touches on areas of of science and neurology and all kinds of things like that uh, as he thinks about that, 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 that thing in the human heart, part of being human, an awareness of the afterlife, um, even among those who would not say they are believers in the God of the Bible, but, but some sense of life that is to come or wishing that it were so, even among the, um, the folks who would deny the existence of God. So a reflective book, and I like the first half. I'll let you know maybe if I get around to it on the second half, but, but I recommend the first half. Good, good things to think about. The peace of heaven, and today looking at one facet of that. But I want to pray for us that God would help us. I know we all come to this discussion of thinking about heaven and certainly motivation for mission in a different way. But we're going to do that together this morning. As I pray for us now, um, I'll be praying for Nate, our pastoral intern, of course, who's preaching up at Central Bible today. A couple other churches where we have staff preaching on a routine basis, as you know. Grace Community Church closed today uh, because, not closed, closed, but electrical problems. And uh, concerned about maybe building, uh, burning the building down. So they, they took the day off till they can get an electrician to look over what's really going on. So anyway, we'll see what happens for the weeks ahead. But Pastor Craig was queued up to preach there and isn't. So we can pray. But join me, please, as we do that. Our Father, how good it is to open the Word of God together and to hear, allow our thinking, and as well as the things that we love, pursue, and long for, all of those things to be shaped by your truth. Would you help us today? Thank you for each person who's come in this morning, first hour and third hour yet to come. Thank you for each one who joins us for worship, those joining us online. So grateful. And pray as well for our friends up at Central Bible Church that you would encourage them today as Nate preaches, uh, that you would have your hand on them for good. And likewise, the folks down south at, at Grace Community Church, guide them as they think about building issues and as we seek to support and encourage 
So thank you for our time together this morning as a church family. We're grateful for your help in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look at your sermon notes, uh, you get some sense in that opening section about where we have been. I realize many of you have been with us each Sunday, but not everyone. So you are correct in in just thinking a moment to, to think about where we've been. Looking at Christmas under this theme of the peace of heaven, this looking back from the future toward the reality of heaven and so on, as in redemption as it relates to today. Two weeks ago, we were in Romans 8. And we reflected on that text where Paul says all creation is groaning. All creations, what you see around you today is groaning under the effects of sin. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, what's called the fall, this this awareness of, of sin in the world. Not only creation is groaning, we are groaning. We are groaning. And indeed, we feel the struggle both in, internally and externally. Last week, we took a look at 1 Peter 4. We saw that Peter describes heaven in three terms of what it is not. It can't perish, spoil, or fade. He's doing his best to try to describe what is indescribable in human terms, but he grabs three negatives. Um, Everything here perishes, spoils, or fades. And Peter says, heaven doesn't. We also spoke last week about C.S. Lewis's phrase, the weight of glory, from the sermon he preached in 1941, uh, based on uh, this, this, the text in Second Corinthians 4, the weight of glory, and how we said last week, based on him, the longings that we experience, all of us, every longing ultimately can find its root in something that will be fulfilled truly only in heaven. I hope you thought about that this week. I sure did. The longings, the things incomplete, the broken things, the hopes, the dreams that may or may never be realized in this life, they're reflective of something in heaven, joy and reconciliation and peace and the fulfillment of hope, so much. That's very interesting to think about as we come to a season when we're often more aware of the things that are not right. Well, today we want to go a bit further. I've asked you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. And if you look at that, that section I have here called opening texts, I had to be careful how I worded this. So I put people watching in, in, you know, quotes, because I didn't want you to think people watching in heaven, like people in heaven are watching us, which I find no basis for in the Bible, which I know is a real relief to all of us. I don't see any basis for that in the Bible, that the people in heaven are just so bored out of their mind. What they want to do is watch your very interesting life. Well, you catch my sarcasm there. I don't think that's in the Bible anywhere. Well, everybody's looking. No, they are not. They're very busy and happy doing what they're doing. And Watching you is, I think, the least of their concerns. But I'm, I'm, I'm using a kind of a tongue-in-cheek approach here. If you were to enjoy a park bench, are you saying there's park benches? I didn't say there's park benches in heaven. It's a hypothetical. So please understand the, you know, the, the fun I want to have with this. But I'm after something serious. If you were to observe the people going by in heaven, who's there? Who's there? So I want to look with you. I'm after something in Revelation. Then we're going to go to our main text in 2 Peter 3, okay? So that's the journey we're going to take. Uh, several things in the book of Revelation. We, were, we read chapter 5 last week, as you recall, but I want to go back to 5, 9, and 10 with a different question in mind, looking at who's there, and I'm going to press on one detail, all right? Uh, other things we could think about together, but one thing for today. If you were watching on a park bench, who's in the room? Who's there? So chapter 5. Revelation, uh, verses 9 and 10, 
as we read it last week and see again, they sang this group. I'm not going to define every group. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. I'll stop there. Worship yet to continue throughout the chapter. So I'm, I'm asking the question, who's, in, who's there? Who are the people walking down the road, so to speak, in heaven? Who would you notice if you were watching? Well, I, I, I mentioned a couple of things here in front of you. Well, all of them are ransomed or redeemed, depending on the translation you have. All of them. All of those, the, the big crowds uh, described in heaven, myriads and myriads and all kinds of different groups of people, All of them are redeemed people. All of them are there because of Jesus, every single last one. Not one walking down the street was one of those amazingly good people who earned it, of which there are none. Every single one of them ransomed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. All right? And I give you just a couple of texts to underscore this, the clear message of the Bible John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And again, Acts 4, 12, speaking of the name of Jesus, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, the apostles said. There is nobody who will be in heaven on that great day who is not ransomed or redeemed by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. So I want to be real clear on this. All right, no one gets to heaven, looks back over their shoulder and says, I earned it. Oh, no, you didn't. You received it as a gift from the work of Jesus on the cross. Now, the next line then, these ransomed people are described as being from every tribe and language and people and nation. Isn't that an interesting phrase? And as we're going to see, and I'm going to press on it today for a reason, uh, that phrase or the concept of the nations more broadly is, it shows up over and over again in the book of Revelation, kind of like God wants you to think about this. People for, from every tribe and language, people, nationality, they're there, which tells you missions, as we think about it in a church context, was successful. It worked. This sending of missionaries, this reaching the nations, even in our own community, It was effective because here, looking back at it from heaven, there are people in the presence of God from every tribe and language and people and nation. They're there. They made it redeemed by the blood of the lamb because down through the centuries, high points and low points, doing it well, doing it poorly, God's people shared the message of the gospel. So I'm saying motivation for mission in part is is looking from heaven's viewpoint and saying, who's in the room? Who's walking down the street? Well, people from every tribe and tongue, people, language. Okay, I want you to see it. It is repeated. So indulge me a couple of other texts, all right? So Revelation 7, verse 9. Again, different groups and so on. Not my purpose today to define each one. I'm after that concept, though. So Revelation 7, verse 9. After this... The Apostle John says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, and then worship throughout the rest of the chapter. A big worship service, very, very uh, full of people, and they're crying out, people from every tribe and tongue and people and language. So, I take this to mean that at some point we're speaking a common language, it would seem, but those differences are not obliterated. When you think about heaven, future, the end, the end game, the future state, the message of the Bible is not that we will all be identical. That is, you know, we think about, well, Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jew. Maybe we'll all become Middle Eastern Jews in the way we look. And the indication of the Bible is not so much, which I say is kind of a warning that if you kind of are most comfortable with people just like you, just wait, sister, because it's going to look different than that in heaven. All right? People from all kinds of ethnic groups, different language groups, what will that look like? Oh, I don't know. But all of them redeemed, various cultures represented, you better get used to it. Okay? They're not all going to look like you which is important because you won't look like them either. And they might look at you and say, wow, somebody from America got in. How weird is that? And he'll say, wait, hold on. I thought we were the main. Yep, not so much. No, no. Men and women, people redeemed. Amen. Exactly. It worked. It worked. The message of the gospel has gone out. Okay, I continue. Chapter 14, verse 6. There's more, I say. There's more. Uh, Revelation 14. Uh, verse, where am I at? Yep, there it is. I'm in chapter 13. That doesn't read quite the same. So 14, verse 6, I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. I'm just seeing that phrase show up continually in all the drama that's unfolding in the book of Revelation. Every nation, tribe, language, and people. Chapter 15, 3 and 4, we read this. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the servant of the Lamb, or the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. I'll comment on that in a moment. Who, who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come. And worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The nations show up in verse 3, and the nations show up in verse 4. Chapter 21, and then into chapter 22, if I may. One more selection here. End of chapter 21. We're moving toward the, the end of the end, so to speak, the eternal state, rather than some of the other elements addressed in the book of Revelation. So the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, which has come out of heaven from God, uh, is described at the beginning of chapter 21. Here then we read in 21, 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Isn't that interesting? Wow. For nothing unclean will ever enter it, 
nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And then you can hardly stop reading because you get to verse 4. They will see his face. Wow, God himself among them. End of verse 5. They will reign forever and ever. This is an amazing scene. But I, I mention at the end of chapter 21, twice is mentioned the nations. The nations will walk in the light of the glory of God. They will bring into this heavenly place the glory and honor of the nations. Isn't it interesting that culture itself is not obliterated but redeemed? So I'm saying to us, missions, what we think of in the church as missions, or maybe properly the mission of the church, in this day, you see the fulfillment of it. It's success. Because in the presence of God are those described as from the nations, those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, a couple of things I have just in parentheses here that warrant a much bigger discussion than we're going to give it today. But I, I mentioned Genesis 12:3, which is the Abrahamic covenant, and especially that third part where, where, where God is speaking to Abraham, telling him to go to a land, I'm going to show you, and so on. I'll make you a great nation, promises him land, uh, descendants, and blessing, of course. And he says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's an interesting phrase. More than Abraham understood. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Of course, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul references that as a preaching of the gospel ahead of time. Even before Jesus, of course, by a few, I don't know, thousand years. But, but a proto-evangelism. Because Paul uses the term euangelion, gospel, good news, when he speaks of Genesis 12, 3. He says, that's the gospel. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Meaning, in the mind of God there, he was speaking of Jesus. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Because from you will come a savior, ultimately, the Lord Jesus. Now, the nations. Okay, jump ahead with me to Matthew 28, the other text I've given you here. The Great Commission, we often think about that as. And in verse, 20, or verse 19 of Matthew 28, it says, Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. And again, terms and, and uh, Bible instruction and things like that, the nations, the nations, the nations. The, the, the Greek term that's used there is the one from which we get our term ethnic. So all the ethnic groups, panta ta ethne, if you really like to, t- to think about those kinds of things. It's what it says in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of all the ethnicities. Isn't that interesting? When you read in the New Testament the word uh, Gentiles, Jews, Gentiles, Jews, Gentiles, I, I, I'm, I, I can't say I've studied every single use, but I'm going to give you about 95%, maybe 99 it's reflective of the term ethnic or ethnos, some term, some derivative of the Greek word ethnic. I, I say this because the Bible speaks of, of one race called the human race. And Jesus dying is the means of salvation for, for those in the human race who will believe. The Bible speaks of different cultures and ethnic groups and languages and backgrounds. The Bible doesn't speak of multiple races. Did you know that? It speaks of one 
speaks of commonality of a savior, commonality of a, of a creator. So when I think about a lot of these things that are thrown around in our culture, I understand the, the discussions and so on, but I just, man, I really prefer Bible language when it comes to this. And here, as I read the book of Revelation, apparently in heaven, all of those elements are not obliterated, but redeemed elements of ethnicities and cultures brought into God's heaven. They'll bring into it, 21, 26 says, they'll bring into this new Jerusalem the glory and honor of the nations. And then chapter 22, as we read it, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. What heals? What heals nations? Laws? Laws? Yelling at people? No, no. Only the work of God can heal the deep divides between people. So really, we need, we need, even in this day, the hand of God to heal the deep divisions between people. Yeah, ultimately, ultimate healing between the nations will only come in his presence and by his work. So these are things that should shape the way we think about culture and people today as we interact with our culture and the people around us. So, so what I'm after here at this beginning, the motivation for mission, again, we'll shift quickly to Second Peter 3. If you were people watching in heaven, every person who would walk in front of you would be a redeemed person there because of Jesus, every one of them. And you would see all kinds of people, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. They might, uh, they'd look different than you do. Uh, it could be, we, we believe in, in heaven, their eternal state, we, we retain things that look like us. Jesus in his resurrected form, once people got over it, they went, yeah, that, that's him. The scars are still in his hands. It's still him. And so I think we would be the same way uh, as we have a new body like Christ's. I want to go back to 2 Peter 3 then. Okay, shift. Here we go. So that's just a little bit of a warm-up from the book of Revelation. Motivation for mission, yes, by seeing it play out. It's success, I'm saying. So I want to go then to 2 Peter 3 which is a, a remarkable chapter, looking at end times and so on. And uh, I'm after a couple of things here, uh, realizing there's more than we can do in one day uh, in a chapter like this. But I want to read all of Second Peter 3 as we hear God's word and allow the Spirit of God to use it, even in areas that I may not even address. God may uh, address your heart through something that is right here in his word. So 2 Peter 3, as we hear God's word, says this. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved or dear friends. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they are from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The day of judgment, it says, 
and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, dear friends, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. By the way, that isn't intended to be a heavenly kind of math. For people who try to use this and say, this is indicating when Jesus is coming back, stop it now. No, it isn't. It's, it's as. It's an analogy. It's, it's just talking about time isn't the same for God as it is for you. So don't start writing on your wall, Jesus is coming back in what year based on this. Just leave it alone. Okay? We put that to rest. All right, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works that are done on it will be exposed or laid bare Other translations would say, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they are burned. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven, new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, dear friends, since we are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Peter says, I don't even understand everything Paul writes. Peter writes, you imagine? That's pretty good. Quite a confession. Uh, Things that the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. As they do the other scriptures, Peter acknowledging Paul's writing as scripture. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the the day of eternity. Amen. Now, Many times in reading texts like this, our eyes are drawn quickly to all the things that we don't understand. All the things not mentioned. Yes, but how's that going to happen? And what about this? And I don't understand. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Many of those are good questions that we ask. But may I encourage a different approach to your Bible study? Uh, Start by finding the things that are really, really clear and grab a hold of those. And build your life and your theology on those rather than spending the rest of your life trying to figure out what you can't figure out. Okay? So I just recommend that to you. This text says a lot of things that are sure, far beyond the questions. It speaks of a coming day of the Lord. It speaks about a day of judgment that is being held off right now. It speaks of the certainty of God who created. God created all things. It speaks of the certainty of a deluge of water that we would call Noah's flood. Peter is referring to Genesis 6, 7, and 8 and sees it as historical literature. That's pretty clear. 
He's using that, that example of God's ability to judge the world and saying, just as he did it in the past, so he can do it in the future, and he will. These are certainties that are being spelled out for us. Now, I have on your sermon notes and a couple of different elements, and I want to approach this text with those things. First of all, I'm saying God's plan for the future is exciting, and I'm saying God's plan for today, then, is urgent. God's plan for the future, God's plan for today. Under the exciting category, wow, that there is a future, that God knows what it's about. Now, in verses 1 and 2, Peter uses a similar term twice to say, remember, remember. I'm going to stir up your pure minds, your sincere minds, by way of reminder that you should remember. So it's kind of a double whammy with a similar idea. Remember, remember what? Well, what the Old Testament says, the predictions of the holy prophets. Have you read the book of Isaiah? We preached through it last year. Saw a whole lot of things about the future, certainly the past, but yet the future as well. Do you remember, he says, what the prophet said? Have you read that part of your Bible? You can only remember what you've studied. Isn't that right? Even that is a bit of work. But he's saying, remember. Remember what you read? Do you remember the Old Testament? Remember the commands of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through your apostles? In a sense, he's covering the whole Bible. But the apostles, do you remember, do you remember what, the, what the New Testament says? And, and, and so he's, he's, that's a call, I think. And then it's a reminder. There are going to be people back then and today who make fun of the Scripture. If you're a meme reader, you know that folks are out there doing exactly that today. If you don't know what a meme is, let it go, okay? Um, But they're out there. People poking fun in a picture or a comment saying, huh, you guys, I mean, come on. Where's the promise of his coming? You guys keep talking about Jesus coming back. Haven't seen him yet. Peter says this like 2,000 years ago. People are poking fun at us. Jesus hasn't coming back yet. Well, guess what? Mockers will come. says in the last days with scoffing. And then he addresses that. He gives an answer. They're overlooking a couple of things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He did it by his word. God spoke and the worlds existed. And they're kind of forgetting. They're forgetting God's ability to speak and make it happen. Psalm 51, he's not just like you. Psalm 50, you thought I was just like you, God says. Uh, That's not true. I can speak and make it happen. See? So Peter says, they're overlooking this. They're overlooking that, that God judged the world in the past, judged it by water. Interesting, if you study history at all, please, you know that there are flood stories in countless cultures around the world. You probably know that. All kinds of cultures uh, outside what, you, what you'd call normal uh, historical uh, writings. There are, there are many. There are flood myths, they're often called by, by anthropologists. Some of them include people in a boat. I mean, what, what do you think was the origin of all of that? Well, the Bible speaks of a global flood with some guy named Noah and a few people hanging out on a, on a, on a boat. Who was invited? Well, apparently a whole lot of people and only eight came. So before people get themselves all riled up saying, think of all that parable. I mean, what did God, he left all this, they drowned and judged. Hold on, hold on. The door was open. The door was open to the ark for a long, long time. So before you get all over God for saying, 
you left them out, the door was open and the ramp was in place. Could have got on. You chose not to. You refused. So, so God could easily say, don't yell at me. I didn't do this. Well, these are interesting things to think about. You didn't get in the, you didn't get in the boat. You didn't get in the boat. Should have. Now, I have in your study notes, certainly cynics and doubters ask similar questions. I'm wanting to underscore here, human history is headed somewhere. It is not random. It is not haphazard. It is not meaningless. Human history is going somewhere. Even as God created and God judged in the past, Peter is pointing out there is coming another day. That is, history is linear. It is moving from a point of creation to its terminus when God ordains it. History is going someplace, which means your life is not meaningless either because you're part of this. You're part of God's unfolding of history. Your life, including your struggles and your pain and your losses, those things are not meaningless. They're part of God's story as he is writing it even now. God's story bigger than yours. You're a part of, you know, Christ is your savior. You're a part of that story that God is writing so I'm, I'm, I'm wanting you to know history is not just random and cyclical and who knows what and haphazard. And further, God in heaven is not pacing up and down the corridors by the things that cause us concern and say, oh, no. God is not saying, oh, no. He is seated on the throne. He is not worried. He is not stressed. He is not anxious about what tomorrow will hold. The peace of heaven could easily describe the atmosphere in the presence of God. No, settled. So we should think about this as we get anxious, understandably, I get it, about things going on around us. No, in fact, yes, you, you walk hand in hand as a believer. If you know Christ, you're walking hand in hand with a God who is not anxious, who holds all things in the palm of his hand who knows where it's going, knows the end from the beginning, including your sorrows and losses. He sees, he knows. And somehow in that great tapestry that he is creating, it weaves together. So heaven, heaven is not in a state of disarray. I reference here 1 Peter 4, encourage you to read that. I love verse 13, where the future is described as, by Peter, when his glory is revealed. That's how he describes the future as it is unfolded, when his glory is revealed. That's a wonderful phrase, First Peter 4, verse 13. You can uh, take a look at the next couple items here on your sheet. Uh, human history headed someplace exactly. Even as God, even as God created everything at the beginning of time, judged the ancient world by a worldwide flood, so God's plan for the future includes a cataclysmic season of judgment, is the fill in there, judgment, That is verse 7. Peter calls it the day of judgment. This is sobering. It should affect our view of mission or missions, motivation for missions. There is coming a day of judgment. We've all seen the cartoons, you know, poking fun at someone. It's usually an old guy with white hair and a beard walking around in a sandwich board saying judgment is coming, right? People make fun of that. Like, yeah, oh, buddy, go get a life. Actually, he, he probably just read the Bible, Judgment is coming. I'm not saying a sandwich board is the best way to communicate it. Probably not. But the truth of the Bible is there is a coming 
day of judgment. How did I know that? I kind of read it in the Bible. There it is. Wow. There is coming a day of judgment. And may I just remind you, God's timing of all these events is perfect. He is not late. He has not forgotten. He is not absent. Rather, God is patient. Verse 9. God is patient. So I'm saying God's plan for the future is exciting. Oh, indeed. Indeed. God's plan for today is urgent. Now, I'm wanting you to think carefully with me at verse 9. You see the word patience is here as it is in verse 15. Count the patience of our Lord in verse 15 as salvation. Here in verse 9, God is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, what does this tell us? And I give you 1 Timothy 2.4 to think about that. I'm going to give you several things, and may I talk theology with you for a moment. So that's my, my heads up, heading into a seminary classroom for a minute. What does this tell us? Well, clearly, to read the obvious, God is patient with lost people. He does not delight in the death and misery of the wicked. You can read this in the prophets as well, if you doubt me. It's the book of Isaiah. God does not want lost people, or does want lost people to come. He does not want them to perish. I'm just reading it. God seems to be waiting. Now, my theology classroom, brief moment, would be this. Please don't let verses like this mess up your, your issues with theology like Calvinism and Arminianism. Okay, uh, those of you who debate such things over coffee, as I've been in plenty of conversations about that, Calvinism and Arminianism, people often uh, read a verse like this and say, uh, okay, and no, I'm saying about Calvinism and Arminianism, if you're not familiar with the debates, I'm not going to de- go into all of it right now, but I'm simply saying this, um, let the word of God speak. And it was, either, it was either Moody or Spurgeon, I forget which one it was, who said, when I preach a text that sounds like Arminianism, I just, I preach it like a good Arminian. If I read a text that preaches like a Calvinist, I preach it like a Calvinist. I let the word of God speak. This would be an example of that. Because I've been in debates where people take a text like this and say, yes, but what it really means is, and I just want to go, okay, stop. What does the text say? And let's go there for our square one. Because it sure says to me, God is patient not wishing for any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. And you know what I think that means? Yeah, yeah, exactly what it says. I think it means exactly what it says. I don't think you need a song and dance to figure out the heart of God. So go with it, okay? And discuss the, the uh, systems of theology later. And I, I have my settled opinions, and um, they would accord with many of yours, I think. But nonetheless, I read a text like this, and I say, I take it to mean God is patient and does not delight in the perishing of the wicked. Okay? Boy, a lot to think about here. I just read, read the Bible. God's plan for today is urgent. The day, the day of judgment described in verse 7 is, is indeed coming. Now, interesting to read the, the, the issues about what's going to happen to the, to the universe. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar and heavenly bodies burned up. Wow, the earth and its works will be, will be exposed or laid bare. And then again, verse 12, heaven set on fire and dissolved. My goodness sakes, that sounds rather cataclysmic, doesn't it? Like, like disasters in the universe. If you read the newspaper, you see a lot of warnings about these things. Like this may happen. So my goodness, what would happen if, can I just tell you? It will. 
it's going to be okay. Uh, people talk about uh, meteors and meteorites, asteroids crashing into the earth. Have you read the book of Revelation? Because it sure sounds to me, it talks about stars falling from heaven and islands disappearing. I take that to mean that there will be stars falling from heaven and islands will disappear. It's pretty amazing. You read the Bible and it's like, wow, that sure sounds like some asteroids hitting the earth. That's amazing. It's what everybody's worried about these days and make movie about and talk about asteroids. I, I, it's kind of in the Bible. And God has it in his hands. And the Bible speaks here of verse 13, a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So rather than believers getting all anxious about such things, to look at it all and say, wow, I read it in the Bible. It's going to be quite a meltdown, literally. But I don't need to have one as we anticipate this because God has it in his hands. And one day there will be a new heaven, new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And we get to hang out there because God will see to it. Isn't that amazing? I think, it, I think it's outstanding. Wow, look what God, look what God is doing. So I see all of that as I read verse, verse 9 and the text around it. I mention, of course, is here on your, your study notes, repentance, this repentance that God is wanting to see in people. It's, it's not simply feeling bad about something. As the door of the ark was closed, a lot of people felt bad, I suspect, but that doesn't mean they repented. To repent is godly sorrow for sin. It's seeing things differently, thinking differently about God himself. It's a change of mind and direction. So it's more than feeling bad. People often associate tears or feeling bad with repentance. Biblically, this is not true. Many people feel bad about decisions they've made. That doesn't mean there's been heart change. So let's not be fooled by this. Oh, I feel so bad and I apologized. But did you repent? You can feel bad and apologize and never repent. And you and I have probably done that. It's what you did when you were nine and your mother said, apologize to your brother or your sister. Were you sorry and really truly repentant? Not a lick. But you still said you were sorry so you didn't have to go to your room. Sorry. Then your mother turned it back and you made a face. I know you did. I know. That's not repentance. It's not repentance. Five sisters. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know of these things. Yeah, no, repentance is which God is seeking from people is not just feeling bad. Godly sorrow for sin, a different way of thinking about him. I say here, God's glory inhabits eternity. All that this is taking place in Second Peter 3, this is the glory of God on display. His glory in judgment, his glory in remaking a heavens and a new earth, his glory is revealed. Again, I point you back to 1 Peter 4, verse 13, that his glory will be revealed. I mentioned here, of course, John 17, and I want to press on to something here. In John 17, this high priestly prayer of Jesus, uh, right as Jesus is heading toward the cross, he's praying about this. And he begins by talking to his father about the glory that he shared in the presence of God before he came into, be, into humanity at Christmas time as we celebrate his, the incarnation. And then in verse 24, he says, Father, I pray that those whom you've given me will be with me in that day, with me, and that they will see my glory. He prays that those who trust Christ as Savior would be with him 
and see his glory. All of this is an unfolding of the glory of God. And I want you to see this. Please get this line down and please make the little fill in, even if you're not in the habit of doing it. The goal of missions and evangelism is not simply helping people to avoid a place the Bible calls hell, though that's important. Okay? No, it's more than that. The goal of missions and evangelism is preparing people one day to experience the glory of God. So it's more than just avoiding something terrible like God's judgment. It's, it's inviting people to, to see and experience the glory of a God who could speak the worlds into existence, hold all things together by his glorious power, and one day has a place prepared that is going to be out of this world, no, literally. Don't you want to be there for goodness sakes? So it, it, we're not just saying, do you want to skip hell? Well, yeah, that's important. But even more... To, 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 to one day be in the presence of the God who made you, to see his, his glory displayed. Don't you want to be there? Don't you want to be there? Revelation 21 and 22, as we read it later. God's mission, then, can be described as spreading the gospel of Jesus till that great day that all things are in subjection to him. We as a church take this very seriously. Did you know that? Uh, yes, we, we want to actively care for people meet the needs of people and celebrate issues in life and death and care for people all along the way. We really want to do that well. That's part of God's mission. But, we, but it's more than that too. Uh, a church is not just a place to hang out and care for each other, as important as that is. That's part of God's bigger mission of seeing the gospel, the story of Jesus, extended to our community, people in it, to our Judea and Samaria, the next level out, and to the ends of the earth. We take this very seriously. We want to see the glory of God go to the nations, all the ethnic groups. This is a big deal in the Bible. It's a big deal to us. I say here, the God of the Bible is a missionary God, always seeking to draw lost men and women to himself. I've been here in this uh, church as your, your pastor for 21 years, I've had a number of conversations about this. Uh, not all of them where we're on the same page. Believe it or not. Does God really care about lost people? Should a church really be active in seeking them? Well, I believe the answer is yes and yes. Amen. So the idea that we would skip some of those things and just kind of hang out, uh, I, I reject and I think the Bible gives that as an option. No, it better be about, just like the Son of Man came not to, you know, to serve, but to, uh, to, to be served, but to serve, give his life a ransom for many. I think we communicate that to a lost and dying world. Uh, I think that's part of why we're here. These texts that I've given you are a few of the texts that underscore this. Genesis 3.9, it's the Garden of Eden. Uh, afterwards, as um, soon as Adam and Eve sin, what happens? God begins the search. For lost people. As soon as there was a lost person, Adam, where are you? As soon as there's one, God began the search. Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3, of course. Abrahamic covenant, as we have referenced it. Psalm 96, one example of the Psalms that say, declare his glory where? Among the nations, among the nations. Unreached people groups, anybody who does not know, declare his glory. The good great commission, Matthew 28, Acts 1. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Absolutely, I believe it. Luke 15, three stories. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost sons, two of them. And what's going on? Searches, diligence, 
rejoicing when those things are found. I take all of that to be an expression of the heart of God who searches for lost people. So all this today, the peace of heaven, yes, motivation for mission. Revelation, what do you see? People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The mission of the church. At that point, looking back on it, it's been successful. We're in the middle of it right now as a church. I hope you are too. I hope you're on board with that mission. I give you a couple things to think about under the category called responding to God's word. The worship of God will last forever. Missions will not. It's coming a day. It'll be too late to respond to Christ. Today, in the meantime, the day of salvation. I hope you know Christ. I hope you know Christ. Today is still the day of salvation. Day of judgment, yes, there will be that day. There will. The peace of heaven. I want us to think about these things. I want you to think about these things. Your, your place with Jesus, those of you in the room uh, each hour, those listening online or listening later, wh- where are you in this? And will you on that great and final day be there in the presence of God because of Jesus? I hope so. Would you stand with me? I'd like to pray for us as we head out on this third Sunday of Advent. Father, thank you so much for the morning. There is so much here in the scripture to challenge our hearts and to shape our thinking, to give direction to our lives even today. Thank you that you know our hurts and our needs and our cares, our longings, all of them reflective of eternity. Thank you for Jesus, the Savior who's come. Thank you for what you teach us. And Father, for those in the room today, those listening online, I pray your encouragement and your care for each one. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Come back tonight at 5 for our third presentation of the peace of heaven.